Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It's Thursday, May 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Some were calling this week's primaries Midterm Super Tuesday, as Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Kentucky, Oregon, and Idaho cast primary votes. Former President Trump proved his endorsement is still very much coveted in Republican circles, but not all of his preferred candidates want. We also saw the complete fall of Representative Madison Cawthorn and a mixed bag of news for Democrats. Aaron Blake, senior political reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for top takeaways. Next, the first public session in 50 years on UFOs took place in Congress this week. We learned that the Pentagon has gotten hundreds of additional UFO reports since last summer, bringing their database to about 400. There was also a new video played that showed a spherical craft moving past the plane in broad daylight. Brian Bender, senior national correspondent at Politico, joins us for what we learned in the UFO hearings. Finally, when we think of nanobots, our minds can begin to wander about incredible microscopic machines capable of repairing bone or healing an illness, or even more nefarious things we see in sci-fi movies. While we aren't there quite just yet, scientists have been able to get nanobots to swim around a wound, deliver antibiotics, and help kill bacteria. Max Levy, contributor to Wired, joins us for how these nanobots work. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There's been a coordinated strike carried out by really kind of the old establishment wing of our party. And it's really something that I think is a, it, it's a loser's mentality. Joining us now is Aaron Blake, senior political reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Well, we just had a round of primaries. Uh, some of them were dubbing this the midterm Super Tuesday. We had uh, voters in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Kentucky, Oregon, and Idaho cast their primary votes. And, you know, as I mentioned, uh, looking to the midterms, right, everybody's starting to glean what they can from this right now. So let's get some top takeaways. Let's start off with uh, President Trump, former President Trump, as he's always a figure in these things. He's uh, endorsed a lot of candidates and some of them won, some of them didn't. So tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, I think it's important to note that the former president has endorsed a lot of candidates. A lot of them are incumbents and people who you would expect to win. So we tend to focus on the races where the outcome is actually somewhat in doubt. And Tuesday brought a couple key ones. One was in North Carolina Senate race where he lined up behind Congressman Ted Budd, who went on to win. The other is in the Pennsylvania Senate race where he lined up behind Mehmet Oz, whose race was still uncalled on Wednesday afternoon, very close, could be headed to a recount. So it kind of fills out a picture of some of these primaries in which the former president has endorsed, where 
he seemed to help some of these candidates, but maybe not necessarily made them beloved by the entire Republican Party electorate. And so it's going to be something fascinating to watch, uh, looking forward to, especially with a, a lot of primaries this month, including his endorsements. Yeah, and uh, but overall still, right, a very coveted endorsement. Uh, you know, this has kind of been the where the Republican Party has been grappling with a little bit of, should we still fully continue to embrace the former president, which it seems like by and large they have, or should we start moving on? The endorsement, though, like I said, is still very coveted right now. And I think it's important to also note that, you know, we're, we're talking about which candidates Trump endorses, but even the candidates that the former president hasn't endorsed will often very much align with his policies or say nice things about him, trying to win over that Trumpian base, even if they don't have the endorsement to go along with it. And so there's no question that the Republican primaries right now are an affirmation of Trump's kind of stranglehold on the direction of the party. And I don't think we should lose sight of that just because he doesn't necessarily get to pick who the winners and the losers are. Let's stick with Pennsylvania for a little bit. The governor race uh, on the Republican side, Doug Mastriano won his uh, primary there. And now he's an interesting character, right? He's an election truther. He uh, approached the Capitol on January 6th. He was at one of the rallies there. He's been uh, promoting some QAnon and other conspiracies, but still he managed to win the Republican primary there. When this was happening, I was thinking back to about a decade ago, and Republicans had a number of rather extreme nominees who were running in some very winnable races, often red-leaning territory like Missouri, Indiana, races that they'd expect to win. And they wound up with candidates like Todd Akin, Sharon Angle, Richard Murdoch, who wound up losing pretty winnable races. And I think that the party back then was in many ways kind of powerless to affect those primaries and push through a more electable candidate. And that's very much true today. And I think Mastriano is maybe the biggest example of that thus far. If you look at the way the Republican Governors Association responded to that, they didn't even say anything nice about him in their <laughs> right. uh, statement on this on Tuesday night. So I think that's that's very telling. And, and it shows that the party is is worried about how some of these candidates might screw up races that they should be winning and what what should be a very good election year in the 2022 midterms. Moving on, Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina. He lost the primary. Interesting character, seen as a, a rising star for some time. Then he got into all sorts of personal issues and, you know, saying on a podcast that he was being offered uh, drugs and orgies and, and all sorts of crazy stuff. And right away, everybody started turning on him. And uh, it seems to uh, kind of led into the primary. He he lost. Yeah, and, and by a pretty resounding margin. I mean, that. The end result was close. Uh, his opponent was about 34, 35%. He was about 32%. But an incumbent getting only less than one third of the vote is pretty much unheard of. When you're an incumbent, you usually hope for a crowded primary field because it'll split up the vote. Well, in this right. case, that crowded primary field wasn't even good enough for him. I think it just reinforces that the party, at least under circum certain circumstances, can guide things in a certain way in a primary. And at least in this case, when it comes to Madison Cawthorn, they were able to get rid of somebody that they, they really wanted to get rid of pretty <laughs> right. badly. How about uh, Democrats? How did they fare in this? Uh, they had some wins, some not. President Biden also, uh, you know, some of the picks that he made, the endorsements that he made, still trailing uh, pretty far behind and all that. What we saw on Tuesday was very much kind of a mixed bag of more far left candidates winning a few races, uh, including 
Summer Lee in Pennsylvania, but losing in other races where there was real resistance to them and, and lots of funding to try and stop them. But then we also have something like the Pennsylvania governor's race where Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is very much a, a, a progressive populist, somebody who the party maybe wouldn't have wanted to run in a race like this 10 years ago, but they've kind of come around to the idea of having less moderate candidates in some of these races because they want to get the base out there too. And so the Democratic Party, the jury is built still very much out on what direction that party's headed in, and it really varies on a race-to-race basis. Aaron Blake, senior political reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. As overseers of the intelligence community, this committee has an obligation to understand what you are doing to determine whether any UAPs are new technologies or not. And if they are, where are they coming from? Joining us now is Brian Bender, Senior National Correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Glad to be here. All right, well, let's talk about what's going on in Capitol Hill. We had the first public UFO hearing in about 50 years, I think is what people were saying. So we got some members of the intelligence community from the Pentagon talking before members of Congress, just trying to learn more about uh, UFOs or UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomenon as, as what they're called now. So uh, we got a few, I think we got like a not seen before video up there, a couple of new little details. We, we heard about a lot more reports coming in and then uh, some more acknowledgement from, uh, as I mentioned, from the Pentagon saying that they're going to be looking into more of these incidents. So Brian, what did we see at this uh, public hearing? Well, this is basically an outgrowth of a couple of years now of growing interest in Congress, particularly among some key members in the issue of UFOs, or as they call them, UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. And this was really driven by some Navy pilots that came forward in 2017, revelations that the Pentagon had a small office at the time that was looking into some of these reports of unidentified craft that were sort of buzzing military facilities, being seen over other sensitive bases, training ranges, that sort of thing. And so Congress has been taking some steps even before the hearing yesterday. They passed a provision as part of the defense bill back in December that requires the Pentagon to set up a more permanent office to gather these reports, to investigate them, to try and make sense of them. I mean, obviously, many of them can be explained away as drones or atmospheric conditions, but it sounds like not all of them. There really are genuinely some cases that are puzzling the military in terms of the 
capabilities these vehicles seem to demonstrate, which we can't really understand. Uh, They say it's nothing that we have. We don't think it's anything the bad guys have, but you never know. So I think that's what got us here. Yesterday's hearing was basically, I think, the first public session, and it sounds like there may be more. Where Congress wants to know, you know, is the Pentagon answering the mail, so to speak, on this, doing what Congress wants, and being more transparent about what they're doing? We got some uh, new video footage. This was cockpit video taken from a, a military training range. They show there uh, kind of a spherical craft that was whooshing around in, in broad daylight. So this is uh, something new, at least, that they, they presented at the, the public hearing. Yeah, this was a point in the hearing that was kind of illuminating, but also kind of not. I think, you know, everybody was really tuned in when they said, hey, we got a video to play for you. It was a cockpit video clearly taken by either an iPhone or some sort of mobile device. Um, at least that's what it looked like. But you couldn't see a whole lot. I mean, it was it buzzed by very fast. It was spherical. It didn't look like any sort of a traditional aircraft anyway. Um, but they also had trouble sort of playing the video. In other words, some members of the committee wanted them to rewind it back, slow it down, and they, they couldn't uh, quite do it. And it <laughs> sort of was a little bit of a hiccup. And I think there was some commentary on Twitter and elsewhere, like, you think they could have at least, you know, had their act together and been able to show this thing and explain it better. But I think it was used basically to illustrate that they are seeing things, capturing things that they don't quite understand. And they're, they're trying, to, trying to figure them out. Another interesting question that uh, some of these officials were asked was, you know, if they've ever obtained any material from crashed UFOs. Now, this is one that they said that they didn't. They don't, I guess there was, you know, if there is material, we don't have any uh, material or something like that. So that's maybe one that some people aren't as willing to believe. You know, there was definitely a willingness on the part of the committee to go there and go out there, so to speak. In other words, asking some questions, like you said, you know, does the Pentagon or the intelligence community have a crash UFO or material in the custody that they can't explain? The Pentagon witnesses said they didn't, but I don't think it sort of ends there. I mean, there's a decent amount of speculation that if not today, in the old days, there could have been stuff that was retrieved that was very well hidden in some of these secret agencies. You know, I think there's this perception we get from Hollywood that somehow the government, the national security bureaucracy is some monolithic thing. It's not. It's very compartmentalized. There's all kinds of rabbit warren structures in there, many of them very secret and on a need-to-know basis, so to speak. So, you know, I think there's still questions on the part of the committee. You know, could there be stuff there that even these senior officials don't know about because they weren't told? And so... I think that was the intent of bringing up some of this more wild speculation stuff like UFO crashes or alien bodies. There was a congressman, Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, a former Marine officer, who asked some pretty tough questions about reports of nuclear missile bases, seeing UFOs, and then all of a sudden the silos with the nuclear missiles in them going dead. Those have been out there in the ether for a long time. But, you know, these guys before the committee said, well, we haven't looked into that one, and but, you know, we promise we'll get back to you on it. So you know, I think it just shows Congress wants answers and they want to dig a little deeper than just the sort of canned public statements. Brian Bender, senior national correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We typically think that, oh, yeah, you can just pop a pill and it'll address it. And that is true to an extent. But what research like this sort of addresses is that 
there are also some problems that are harder to reach just by ingesting a pill or being injected with something that the bloodstream can take you only so far. Joining us now is Max Levy, contributor to Wired. Thanks for joining us, Max. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Wanted to talk about uh, some interesting stuff. So when we talk about nanobots, you know, a lot of people think of sci-fi movies and whatnot. They think little microscopic machines that can uh, (laughs) crawl all over your body and uh, heal bones instantly, rebuild muscle tissues. You know, we've all seen those movies where they've implemented this stuff. We're not quite there yet with a a true technology like that. But there is uh, has been some advances very recently with at least nanobots that can kind of swim around a wound, treat different parts of a wound and deliver antibiotics. Really, really interesting stuff. So maybe not so much little tiny microscopic machines, but think of particles of silica loaded up with little tiny motors that swim around. So uh, it's all very interesting. Max, tell us a little more about it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And it, it really is sort of fascinating. I think that a lot of people, when they think about nanotechnology, they think about these tiny little robots that could swim around and do pretty much anything you would want them to do. And what was sort of funny in, in realizing this story is that that's more realistic, <laughs> I suppose, yeah. um, than, than, one might, than one might expect. So, so what's really cool about these nanobots is they're basically like tiny little rocks that have these proteins on top of them. And what they're able to do with those proteins is move around. The, the proteins can cause a sort of chemical reaction that converts chemicals into mechanical energy and allows these things to move around as if they have motors all over them. And it addresses actually a pretty interesting and important problem in the world of biomedicine. I think that we have a tendency to think about drugs, whether we're talking about antibiotics or cancer drugs, anything that you might ingest as very easily moving around the body. You know, you like you pop a pill and whether you have pain in your foot, or a headache or a toothache or maybe an infection somewhere in your body, you typically think that, oh, yeah, you can just pop a pill and it'll address it. And that is true to an extent. But what research like this sort of addresses is that there are also some problems that are harder to reach just by ingesting a pill or being injected with something that the bloodstream can take you only so far. You can have germs that linger within mucus, within biofilms, kind of these like dense colonies of bacteria in your lungs. You might have uh, infections or cancer sort of in around the cells lining, lining your bladder or urinary tract. These are typically a lot harder to reach. Tell us about this experiment they did because they infected uh, scratched mice along their backs, giving them an infection. And in one scenario, they just put some of the antibiotics without the nanobots on one end. It really just kind of cleaned up that end. But the ones that did have the bots swam the length of the injury and delivered the antibiotics to everything. So, you know, kind of proving that they can reach those harder to reach uh, areas. It turned out to be a very clever way of designing this experiment. I think that typically when you're trying to prove that an antibiotic works, for instance, on an animal, you might just treat the entire wound or just apply some antibiotic over an entire area and, and sort of see what happens. But, but this, they were trying to challenge themselves a little bit more to really see whether they could cover a region that they're not administering an antibiotic to. And that's, that's sort of the whole idea, exactly as you mentioned, that they want to demonstrate the power of motion, of active motion, not just that they have a drug that, that can work. And so, yeah, exactly. As you said, what they, what they did is they administered these nanobots that were sort of loaded up with 
an experimental antibiotic. And what they found was that they have evidence that these things will swim around a, a wound. And even though they're placed on one extremity, one third of the wound, the nanobots can take the antibiotic and treat the drug-resistant bacteria that's throughout the wound. So it'll cover the entire length of that wound, whereas just an antibiotic alone can't do the same thing. So um, it's certainly interesting in that regard. And the fuel use for it, it's urea, right? So it's yeah. uh, found in a lot of parts of the body, obviously, and that's non-toxic. But this is a little fuel that the motors use. And when you're talking about other applications and what's going on, they're thinking about things to treat kidney stones. You know, a bunch of different areas where in the body you can find uh, plenty of that, uh, that fuel source, at least. Yeah, urea is biocompatible with something that's naturally produced in the body. And what's particularly useful is that it's very prevalent in a region of the body that can be prone to infections, can be prone to certain things like kidney stones, to cancers even. And that's just the urinary tract, right? So you're sort of like urethra, kidneys, bladder, any sort of issues that you have in that space you'll have fuel because you have, <laughs> you have the urea there, right. right? So if you, in a case where maybe you don't have like a dense fluid like mucus or something, but you have a stagnant fluid, such as in the bladder, you know that you're able to actually get these things to swim around because there's plenty of urea in the bladder, right? I mean, it's, it's a component that is part of the process to, for us to produce urine, sure. right? So it's around there. Max Levy, contributor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.